am so excited to get to teach here this morning. I love being here last week. Uh, uh, the C.S. Lewis treat was such a treat, and, and it just whetted my appetite even more for, for being uh, a chance to share with you God's Word. Now, I got to tell you, there are certain things I do typically each day, and some of the things I do each day are fillers. They're things that that if you've got like an extra minute or two here or a minute or two there, I just tend to try to fill those times up because it's the way my, my personality works. And one of the things I like to do is, is a good little nerdly thing called um, the crossword puzzle. And the New York Times has a crossword puzzle, and it's, it's, it's really something that you've got to kind of get into the groove to be able to do because, you know, Monday's an easy day. So if you're going to start, and you don't do crossword puzzles, start with Monday. And then Tuesday gets a little bit harder. Wednesday gets a little tougher. By Thursday, you're really tempted to Google. Um, but, but what happens is when you start getting into it, you realize that there are clues to the answer, but sometimes there are clues within the clues, if that makes sense. So, for example, here we've got one and 30 across right there. The clue for that was investment initials. But initials is abbreviated. And if they abbreviate in a clue, you know that the answer is supposed to be an abbreviation. It's just a clue within the clue. So you're looking at the three letters and instead of the answer being an individual retirement account, the answer is simply I-R-A, the abbreviation. Make sense? Now, sometimes as you work these crossword puzzles, you can actually get into the, the mind of the composer. The composer will set up certain clues that, that are kind of repeated throughout the puzzle. And, and uh, this is last Thursday's when I was typing up the lesson and and I'd, I'd had a few minutes spare that I'd done a couple of the answers. But I didn't have all of the answers in there yet. But you can see eight across. The clue for eight across up at the top was something like single, double, triple. And, and then the answer was got a hit. Because, you know, baseball got a single, a double, a triple. So you just kind of, you kind of get into the mind. And, and as I was getting into the mind of this one, I saw 10 down. The clue was squirt. I thought, lemons, they squirt. Limes squirt. Oranges squirt. But uh, it's a three-letter word that starts with T. Then it occurred to me. Tot. Because it wasn't something that squirts a verb. It was like, hey, squirt, get on down the road. Look at that little squirt. And, and you like, and so you know it's not going to be kid, uh, uh, you know, for squirt, because it's got to be more of a nickname type thing, just because that's the way this guy was thinking, the composer. Squirt is a clue that lets you know the answer is going to be kind of a goofy word for a kid. Tot instead of toddler. Now, I just use that as a metaphor for class because it's not only true with crossword puzzles, the same is true with almost anything you read. If you read something, including biblical text, you can sometimes get into the mind of the author a bit and understand a little bit of where the author is coming from. 
that enables you to read a passage and get maybe a fuller flavor for the passage than you might get otherwise. Whenever you're doing this, however, you've always got to be very careful. You've got to be careful that you don't take a passage and try to inject your favorite ideas and your theology or doctrine or or pet project onto the passage because that's a tempting thing for us to do. You've also got to be real careful that you don't read into the passage something that's not there. You know, the human brain is famous for um, its... uh, Humans tend to see patterns in randomness. Our brains just tend to, to see things as patterns. One of the most famous examples happened during World War II. Since it's Veterans Day, I'm going to throw it in there. Wasn't, didn't plan on it, but you get freebies when you come to this class. So in World War II, I have to look over here while I'm drawing. In World War II, there was a huge concern that Hitler's V-2 rockets that had just missiles on the top and they were just rockets, that that he had figured out a guidance system. And if so, London was in trouble. So what they did to try to figure it out is they had, this is the the Thames River, and it kind of bends like this, and you've got Parliament and all of that kind of mess over here. What they did is they tried to map where all of his explosions were happening and where were the bombs hitting. And they drew a map and they put in where the bombs were hitting and they, they uh, noticed that there were a lot more bombs in one qua- two quadrants than in another. And they decided Hitler had a guidance system. Now, the truth of the matter is, they learned after the war, Hitler did not have a guidance system. That's just a tendency of the human mind to see a pattern where a pattern's not there. If instead they had drawn the quadrants that way, just as easily done, just as mathematically fair, it was even, or within all purposes even. And so that way, there was no pattern. All to say that we've got to be real careful because we'll tend to see things that may not be there just because we're taking it into the text. And I don't want to do that. So I want to be very, very careful. But I think that as you get into the mind of John, the apostle, and you look at John chapter 5 as a whole, you're going to see something that makes that text more significant, more meaningful, with a grab-you-by-the-throat feel to it that enhances John's message. So I think it's a fair thing to do, but I want you to hold me accountable. And I say that because some people, including one of my favorite biblical theologians, disagrees with me. I was emailing with, ah, Greg is here today. I was emailing with Greg last night and Greg was saying, yeah, you know, he's a chemistry mathematics background fellow who tends to see things through his prism. And I think that may be accurate and fair to say. Um, uh, I agreed with, with Greg in that email. And, and, 
And that brings a strength to certain things. This guy's a real good Greek scholar. Greek is basically math, but uh, with, with poetry mixed in. But, but it, it makes him a good scholar in some ways. But sometimes it, he doesn't quite have the... I think he misses something in this passage is the best way for me to say it. So I want us to look at John chapter 5 verses 1 through 9 together. And, and I went ahead and I put it into the text instead of putting it up there so that we can all read it together. After this then, or after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man there um, who had been an invalid for 38 years, Jesus sees him. Jesus sees him lying there and knew he'd been there a long time. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? Now the sick man answered Jesus and said, sir, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. While I'm going down another steps before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Okay, you got it? Now, reading that story, I want to tell you, there are a couple of things that stand out to me as I read it carefully. There are a couple of things that, I mean, they're eggs. It's all part of the story, but these are like golden eggs. There's just something different about, what, what is this doing in the story? John is extremely well written. One of the primary books I tell people who want to write well, one of the primary books that I tell people is get the little book by Strunk and White, Essential Elements of Style. Rule one, omit needless words. Omit needless words. Well, John may have some needless words in here. He's at least got some stuff that sticks out like a sore thumb. I personally don't think he has needless words. I think this is written very carefully. Remember, John had been preaching this for 50 or 60 years by the time he writes his gospel. He knew these words carefully. So let's look at it. See if you can see some of these things that tend to stick out as needless ads. And I say that because my friend's commentary is one where he basically says, eh, he just kind of just threw this in there. It's an incidental Something doesn't really have any significance to the story. That's what I disagree with. I think maybe some people are missing the significance. So let's do it together. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Well, which one? There are lots of feasts. My buddy Rick Meadow, my, my, my Jewish brother, says to me, Mark, most of the Jewish feasts are all the same. They tried to kill us. They weren't successful. Let's eat. <laughs> but I want to know which one it was. At least if I'm the reader of John, I'd think, 
huh, wonder why he's not telling me. Is this Sukkot, the, the Feast of Booths? The Feast of the Ingathering? The Harvest? Is this Hanukkah? Is this Purim? The Esther Feast? Is this uh, 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 Rosh Hashanah? Is this Passover, Pesach? What's the feast? John doesn't tell you. But I will say this. John consistently uses feasts in his gospel to highlight the significance of what happened and what was said. He doesn't have to say Jesus went for a feast to the Jews. He could just say Jesus is in Jerusalem. The story works fine. But he went to the extent and the measure of adding that Jesus went feast of the Jews. Elsewhere in John, he'll name the feasts so that we understand why that feast ties to those events. Let me give you some examples. In John chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus is, is at Passover. And he goes to Jerusalem at Passover and he sees the money changers in the temple. And John, in verse 13, makes it a point of saying, this is at Passover. So he sees the money changers in the temple. He chastens them and, and drives them out. And the people want to know, by what sign do you get to do this? And Jesus said, you want a sign? You'll get a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And he's referencing his body. Now that that happened at Passover is significant for a number of reasons. Number one, Jesus will be crucified at Passover. That happens at the end of John and it's going to hearken the reader back to what Jesus said at Passover years earlier. Showing that his death is no accident. Jesus in his ministry knew from the beginning where his ministry ended up. He knew what his divine purpose was before God. And he walked that path deliberately by choice. So for that and many other reasons, it's so important. But Passover, of course, is a festival that was instituted in the books of Moses. How many books of Moses? Five. We call them in English Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you were reading under the Jewish calendar right now, since Sukkot has just passed, you would, in Rosh Hashanah, and then Sukkot has passed, you would still be reading in Genesis, Bar-Eshit. If you were reading a Hebrew parasha, the, the portion as they read through the Torah each year. But those five books, or the books of Moses in the law, the Torah, those five books, we have set out most of the Jewish feasts. And the feast of Passover is a feast that happens because of the Passover lamb that is sacrificed so that God's people can be redeemed from slavery and go forth into the promised land. And after that redemption, they go to Mount Sinai where God tells them, build the tabernacle, the predecessor to the temple. Build it exactly this way. Because as John has already indicated, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled. He dwelt among us. So you've got that feast 
and it's very clearly linked up to the story that is contained therein. If you go to next week's passage, Jesus feeds the masses at Passover. John 6, 4. It's, it's, it sticks out like a sore thumb in the passage for next week. Uh, this, by the way, does not get you out of coming next week. Look at this. Just see how this sticks out like a sore thumb. You're just reading along and it's very narrative and, and you, you're following the plot. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus goes up on the mountain. There he sits down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Non sequitur. That doesn't follow. What does that have to do with it? And then, look at the next. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd coming, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread that the people may eat? I mean, that reads real clearly if you just read the yellow part. But this stuff I'm underlining in purple sticks out like a sore thumb. What's that doing in there? Well, John's put it in there to draw attention and make it stick out like a sore thumb. Because this is the passage where Jesus takes the loaves and the fishes and feeds 5,000. And the Passover, the Exodus story from the books of Moses is the one where God feeds the people who are hungry with manna and quail. And Jesus is that, and you come next week and we'll go into it in much more detail. But it's the same type scenario. Um, not just there, John 7, 1. He's got a, an Israeli man holding up his son who's decorating their Sukkot, their, their, their booth, their tent, their lean-to for that festival of Sukkot. That festival is read about in John 7, chapter 1. In John 7, 1, Jesus speaks of himself on the last day of Sukkot. So Sukkot was like an eight-day festival. And for seven days, what would happen is they would take a big old jar and get a massive amount of water from the pool of Siloam. They would take it to the temple and they would pour it out. On the eighth day, they did not do that. It was a day of prophetically with Zechariah where God was going to do it with the Messiah. The eighth day, they would not pour out the water. Here we've got the Feast of Booths, the soup, which is Sukkot. Um, bah, 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 bah. John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Galilee wouldn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Jesus doesn't go up at the bottom. He goes, or at the beginning, he goes at the middle of the feast and he starts teaching. And then look at this. On the last day of the feast, this is the day where they do not bring the water. Because they were waiting for Messiah. The great day. Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. As scripture has said. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John knows we'll understand that story much, much much better if we know that it happens during the Feast of Sukkot. You see what I'm talking about here? How this same rhythm is, 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 is expressing itself in the book? 
Look at uh, John chapter 10. In verse, John 10 verse 22. Jesus is there celebrating the feast of dedication. Now a lot of people look through their Old Testament. They can't find the feast of dedication anywhere in the Old Testament. Do you know why? It's not in there. Do you know what we call the feast of dedication? Hanukkah. Hanukkah happened, the origination of Hanukkah came between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of, of the ministry of Jesus. 150 years before Jesus, the, the, the political powers were trying to force Judaism into becoming a Greek religion. So they took the Jewish temple and they erected a statue of Zeus so that the Jews were expected to worship Zeus. And then they took a pig, an unclean swine, and sacrificed him on the temple. The most abhorrent practice there could be. It stirred up a Jewish rebellion. And the Jewish rebellion was one that retook the temple... And that temple was rededicated to God and all glory came to God who, who let the lights burn longer than they had oil to burn them. And that was a dedication and a feast of dedication because God secured his temple. John wants his readers to know that the story he's recounting happened at the Feast of Dedication because that's the story where Jesus says, hey, you don't know me because you're not my people, but I want to tell you something. God will keep all of my people. Not one of them will he lose track of. The God who secures the temple secures his people. It's a major part of the story. Then, of course, at the end of John, we've got Jesus' death happening at Passover. So here we've got this. There was a feast of the Jews. John's not telling us which one it is. Which one it is is not the reason it's important. It's that there is a feast of the Jews. And you should be, the reader should be running through their brain thinking, okay, uh, these feasts are all outlined in the five books of Moses, uh, most of them, not all of them, um, but the major ones are. So let's go through and let's see which one it is. Could it be this? Could it be that? Da, 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 da. And you've, you're now thinking about the books of Moses. Okay? Now, let's keep going. Jesus, oh, which feast is not important? That it is a feast of the Jews is the clue. Now we keep going. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. Now, Bethesda in Aramaic, or uh, actually even in Hebrew, bait means, well, let me do it this way. Before we get to the meaning. You may be sitting there saying, why did he put that in there? I mean, is this John writing his tourism guide for a week to see Jesus' holy sites? I mean, is, is, is this a holiday brochure? No, John's not doing that. 
John is very deliberate in what he's doing. So let's look at the word. Bethesda is Aramaic. It is two Aramaic words combined. Bet is the word for house. Eshda is the word for outpouring. It's esh, S-H sound in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the, the Greek doesn't have an H sound. They can't make an S-H sound. That's why even Saul's name, Shaul, is Saul in Greek. They just, they don't have it. So it's, instead of Beth Eshda, it's Beit Esta in Greek because they put it into Greek. Sorry, it's just the way Greek is. So you've got a house of outpouring. Now, by the way, if you go to Israel and you go with certain tour guides, they're going to take you to the pool of, of Bethesda and they're going to tell you it means uh, a house of mercy because they, they think that, that it shouldn't be translated Bethesda, but Beit, again, house, and Chesda, which means mercy or grace. But I think the better rendering is Beit Esda, Bethesda, as the English Standard Version gives it. So here you've got Bethesda. It means the house of outpouring. And that's the house that was there, and that's the house where Jesus was. And uh, uh, let me go back there. There we go. Uh, that's the pool. And John wants us to know this is a pool of outpouring. If you go to the ruins today and you see those ruins, it's kind of hard to find the five colonnades and the pools and all because they built a church over the site and the church itself is in ruins. But you've got now this added fact. Pool. The pool is one of outpouring, a house of outpouring. Look at the next line. With five roofed colonnades. Now why on earth are you putting that in there? I mean, are you worried again about a tourist going, this could not be the one, this one has four. Oh, no, 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 this is the wrong pool. It's got six colonnades. No, there's no confusion that's going to happen. But five is a very notable number as you're thinking through the five books of Moses, the Torah, the law, because that's exactly what you have. Five books of Moses. And they are the support. They are the, 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 the colonnade for the entire legal system, the temple structure. Judaism is built upon the Torah, the law. The five columns of those five books of Moses. Now, one of my friends that I will not mention by name, uh, um, he's come to the library and spoke before. He's, uh, uh, I've had him in this class. Great guy, phenomenal scholar. Um, but he's got a commentary on this, and he and I do not see this the same way. And I think it's because he sees this in a very narrow perspective. And I don't think he's, and maybe that commentary is 30 years old. Maybe he sees it differently now. But I, I pulled a section out of his commentary. I want you to read it. He said, a Bordeaux pilgrim visited Jerusalem in A.D. 333. And he described a pair of pools with five arcades. Though he called the pools Bethsaida instead of Bethesda. 
Sporadic uh, excavations have probed the site for more than a century. It's located near the Church of St. Anne in the northeast quarter of the old city near Nehemiah's Sheep Gate. There were two pools lying north and south surrounded by four covered colonnades and a rough trapezoid with a fifth colonnade separating the two pools. This hard evidence excludes the suggestion. A suggestion, by the way, I'm making. That the five colonnades are merely symbolic representations of the five books of Moses now ineffective for healing and salvation. Wrong! That's exactly what it is. It may be, maybe it's not merely symbolic because there actually are five. And the fact that it's excavated this way doesn't mean, oh, that means that there's no uh, reason to think that this is John indicating that the five books of Moses are ineffective for healing and salvation. Well, I don't mean that at all. He didn't have to put it in there. The mere fact he mentioned it has some significance. It's not some incidental throw-in for tourist purposes. But I'll go a step further and say if you analyze what's there, it's not technically one pool with five colonnades. It's two pools with four and a fifth dividing them. And John makes it a point of just talking about it as one pool with five colonnades. And that tells me John wants us to see the whole picture and that it does fit with a greater message that he's got. The point of this story is going to be the ineffectiveness of the, the, the Jewish system and the law for bringing life and salvation and healing. So let's go back. Five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Not 37. Not 39. Not 35 to 40 years. Not nearly 40. Not for a lifetime. Not for a generation. 38. Bam. Now, if your brain is already reading this and thinking about the five books of Moses with the feasts that are there and the outpouring of those books because they were poured out by God on Sinai, Bethesda, if you're thinking about the five supports of those Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then... I think you'll see in this 38 not simply something John put in there for his book on gospel trivia. Hey, how many years had the man been paralyzed by the pool of Bethesda? 38. Ding, 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 we have a winner. 38 are the number of years the Jews wandered in the wilderness because of disbelief. So I thought that was 40. No, it was 40 if you add the two years it took them to get to the wandering part from Egypt to their lack of faithfulness at Kadesh Barnea. So here it is from Deuteronomy 2.14. The time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea till we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. That 38 years is exactly how long the Jews wandered in the wilderness in the five books of Moses. So what do we have now? John has set the stage for us to now follow the story. Look at the story again. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been there a long time, Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The sick man said, first of all, this just, this man was sick. I mean, he wasn't just an invalid. He was sick. The answer to that question is, please, yes, by God's mercy, save me. Yes. And instead, he, Mr. Whiny Pants says, uh, well, I don't have anybody put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. Well, I'm going down to, to, to get in. Someone gets down there before me. Jesus says, just get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. It's a great story. There's no one to put me in when the water stirred up. I can talk about that. I don't talk about it here. We don't have time. But there's a, a rumor that was there at the time that an angel would stir up the water. And if you were first in, you got like free healing. There's a rumor. John's not giving any credibility to that. So within the context of that, that's what the man says. But Jesus' response is blunt. He says, just get up and walk. I got this done, and this is on the Sabbath. Now, that, again, is going to echo back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament, the books of the law, those five colonnades on which Judaism stood all said the Sabbath was a holy day of rest, solemn rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't do work on that day. It's, it's longer in the original Hebrew than all the other commandments. It's the longest one because it's the one that's so hard to keep. So when Jesus heals this man and tells him to take up his walk, there are two problems in the mind of Judaism. Problem number one, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. No work. And number two, Jesus told the man to carry his mat. So he's telling the man to work. Now if we were reading the story, it's really interesting what happens. The man gets caught by the Jewish powers that be carrying his mat down the road. And they say to him, what are you doing carrying your mat down the road? It's the Sabbath. That's illegal. And the man, a little tattletale, the man says, oh, uh, look, this guy healed me. And he told me to do it. I mean, like, am I going to make someone mad when they've got enough power to heal me? He said, do it. So I just did what he told me to. And they said, who was this guy that told you to break the law? He says, I don't know. Now, do you get the implication of what's happened there? If you are paralyzed or lame for 38 years and someone heals you on the spot when you don't even ask for it, I want to be Miss Manners for a moment and tell you, A, say thank you. B, ask for their address so you can write them a thank you note. And that's assuming you don't say, man, thank you so much. How much is that going to cost? <laughs> thank you, doctor. And you pay him. 
You give them something. This man didn't even get Jesus' name. What ingratitude. So a couple days later, the man's in the temple. Jesus seeks the man out. Jesus comes up to him and says, I see you're doing pretty good. I was like, uh, yeah. Jesus says, um, go and sin no more. Now, a lot of people read this passage and they think, huh. It must have been the man's sin that made him lame. Well, we don't know. John doesn't say. But this idea of sin just takes us again back to the Torah. The Torah is what lays out sin, the law of Moses. And so we've just got that reverberating here as Jesus tells the man, you know, to, to do right. You know what the man does? He goes and he finds the temple authorities and he rats out Jesus. Says, hey, I got that guy's name. Turns out his name's Jesus. He's like this guy from up north. He's around, but if you want to get on the guy who told me to carry my mat, who healed me on a Sabbath, that's who you want. So they, the Jewish authorities come to see Jesus. And the nice part about this is we get to see clearly who Jesus is as we chart that interchange between Jesus and the powers that be. As we walk through that interchange, we see Jesus was one who did the works of God. Remember, don't work on a Sabbath. Okay, Jesus says, I was doing God's work. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, the Son does likewise. So, would you like to indict and judge God for working on the Sabbath? God healed the man. Jesus also was someone who was privy to God's plans. The Father loves the Son, shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Privy to God's plans. You're not getting that under the law. You don't get under the law... Someone doing the works of God. You've just got these words of what God himself has done previously. You've got God's words of instructions for how you should live. But it's not privy to God's plans for the moment with the people. Jesus had God's power to give life. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. As the Father has life in Himself, the, He's granted the Son to have life in Himself. Jesus has a power to give life. That power is not found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That man could lay in that portico for 38 years. The Jews can wander in the wilderness for 38 years. Life is not found in the words of the law. It's found in the God who gave the law. They're not magic words. He's an all-powerful God. This power is based on Jesus being his son. 
Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And it's here right now when the dead will hear the voice of God, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And that day was just right around the corner. For the first, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead several chapters later. Jesus had God's authority. The Father judges no one. He's given judgment to the Son. Jesus makes these determinations. Jesus is worthy of the honor that is due God. Jesus said, this is so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is who Jesus was. And, and, and if we're reading this with that whole Old Testament scene in from the whole story that set this up that John bothered to tell. John could have just given this narrative. But he gives all of this story behind it because Jesus says, you search these scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. No. They don't give you eternal life. They bear witness about me. I give you eternal life, Jesus is saying. Those scriptures bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me so that you can get life. I mean, Jesus was there on the Father's behalf. He came in the Father's name. Jesus is the source of life. Whoever hears my words, he said, and believes them. Uh, no, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. All of this is part and parcel of understanding. This is why I think it's so important we not overlook the beginning of this story. Because these are the perfect bookends. This story starts out with the law in metaphor and picture and image. A feast of the Jews. The pool of outpouring. The five colonnades of support. The 38 years of paralyzed life. None of the law worked for that man. None of it. And if you read through the story, you see that man sided with the Jewish temple authorities much more so than Jesus. But none of that worked for that man. It was the outpouring of Jesus that worked. It was the life that Jesus brought. And so this story starts with the law and the events unfold, but it ends with the law too. The very last passage in that chapter is the perfect bookend. If you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me because he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, why are you going to believe my words? Don't, this whole thing started out with a focus on the writings of Moses and it ends with a focus on the writings of Moses. But paramount to it is Jesus the Messiah in the middle. You got it? All right, points for home. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I'm in that story. Oh, by God's mercy, I'm not physically lame, I'm not physically blind. Uh, I'm not physically paralyzed. 
but spiritually I am. Emotionally. There are, there, there, look, and, and I want to tell you something. If you are that way, and you are in that story too, whoops, if you are that way, you will never, ever find your healing by simply reading your Bible and doing what it says. Your healing comes from Jesus Christ. And if you're not in a relationship with him where he has touched your life, you don't have that healing. But if you've got that healing, none of the guilt is there. Because all of the blame has been paid for in full. And you are living a new life. You will not make it by yourself. You're not going to be good enough. Nowhere, no how. You're not going to be smart enough. You're not going to be pretty enough. You're not going to be handsome enough. Not going to be clever enough. Not going to be morally upright enough. It's just not going to happen. You'll never get God's love through that. You get God's love because he loves you. And when you respond to his heart of love, the relationship will transform your entire life. But it's one of faith and it's, it's, it's not, that's just where it's rooted. So that's our second point for home. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he said, well, the man who healed me, that man told me to take up my bed and walk. Please understand the Sabbath is a day where you're not supposed to do work. Jesus was doing what God wanted him to do. That's never work. That's obedience. The man was doing what Jesus told him to. When that man's walking around with a mat, that's not a job. I mean, you've been laying on that thing for 38 years. You can't move. God heals you, tells you to pick it up and walk. If this dear sweet lady down here has got a walker to help make sure you do not fall when you walk. If Jesus gave you the agility to be an Olympic athlete and told you to pick that walker up and take it out the door, that would not be a job for you. That would be a joy for you. That man was carrying a trophy of God's grace, mercy, and power. He's carrying praise to God. And their focus was so narrow, they're looking at it as a rule violation. And not understanding that that's praise to God. Look, if God has forgiven you, you don't need to ever carry shame for anything you've done that you've been forgiven of. That is now a trophy of God's grace. And it, it is nothing less. Last, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. I don't have the judgment of the law. I don't have the judgment of guilt. I don't have the judgment of true moral failure. I don't have the judgment of horrible mistakes in my life that I wish I had a rewind and redo button on. I have total forgiveness and a new life after death. Jesus, God, has given me life. I think I'm going to live it for him. 
Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, bless everyone who hears these words. Thank you for putting them into Scripture and giving us an opportunity to dwell on them together. You've given us life, Lord. May we live it for you. Through Jesus, our outpouring of grace and mercy. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.